You could stay here forever, if you want to. Really? Sure, we'll sing and play games, and Mother will cook your favorite meals. There's one tiny little thing we need to do. What's that? <laughs> well, it's a surprise. For you, our little doll. Black is traditional. But if you'd prefer pink, or vermilion, or chartreuse. Though you might make me jealous. No way! You're not sewing buttons in my eyes! Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 80. We are in the second fifth of this uh, good old experiment we're doing. Yeah, I can't really believe we even made it this far. It seems well, weird. We are nothing if perseverant in the face of no reason to be perseverant. Don't open I that beer. I just want to drink something, yet. Mario. It's been a long week. I want to drink this beer. Has it been? Recorded five days ago. Oh, it's felt like forever uh, ago, my friend. You've had a child who's been very sick. I am actually still going over a sickness, so if you hear me sounding like Kermit J. Frog, um, <laughs> that's why. Kermit, I'm going to call him Kermit J. Frog. Well, you know what the best remedy for your ailment, Mario, and mine as um, well? Sleep, tea, no rest. That's wrong. It's oh, drinking. Is it, is it beer? Is it's it beer? drinking, okay. yes. We are drinking from Banded Brewing, a beer we had near one of our first weeks. Yeah. Uh, we had that uh, alpine leafy, aspen beer with the, uh, the ass- I can't remember what happened. It, it had some it had, like, tips in it. Spruce tips. Spruce tips. Spruce yeah, tips. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, this is the Jolly Woods Band. It is a coffee stout with speckled axe Kenyan espresso. I don't know what that means. But uh, this cover looks kind of like a uh, a romantic comedy. Um, if the uh, romantic comedy end was like a serial killer in a in a woodsland movie, like found so love. I married That's an actually a really good idea. But like, from uh, uh, like a forest, like a spoofy short, like a a murderer. Maybe that maybe that will be the first film of love. pivotal film films. Yeah, we're gonna call ourselves pivotal films. Yeah, just okay. It's <laughs> a loud pop. That's it a loud was. one. Tap it, or dink it, whatever. Ooh, <laughs> it smells boozy. It's only it's seven point five percent. It's heavy. Yeah. It's coffee though. Hmm. It's very tasty though. I like that. It coats the tongue really well. It has a nice uh, mouth feel to it. Um, it's what you fully expect in a stout. It has that really heavy body. I think mm-hmm. what most impresses me is the body. Um, the taste is, you know, it's very coffee forward. Not much else besides like a coffee. It's just like a very prototypical coffee stout. But it's but got it, this, it mentions the yeast on the back. I'm getting a little yeast. Well, I mean. Mixed with that it coffee. Just, it just gives the ingredients. No, 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 but one I'm saying like. ingredients is yeast. But I'm has, saying I can taste that. It is one of the four main ingredients in beer. But it has a yeasty aftertaste, I think. You get the Sacco River water? Well, yeah. Water? Of course I get the Sacco River water, Mario. Uh, it's just a given. Centennial hops. Huh? I'm not used to centennial hops in a porter. 
or sorry, a stout. Um, I'm going to agree with you, but I don't know why. Yeah. Got some nice malts. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good beer. It is a good beer. Very actionable, serviceable beer. All right. So, um, as we said before, this is a, a, a bummer of a week. We didn't get out to the theaters. The big Netflix movie um, that's supposed to drop soon, Roma, um, is on Friday. And we had Mogwai this week, but <laughs> neither no, of us we're not, neither of us see that. Um, I don't think you guys need to see that either. We haven't seen it yet. Oh, Mowgli? Mowgli. Did I just call it Mogwai again? You did. You just oh wanted to badly. Did we, did we do this before? Was this before? No, I think I was talking to somebody else. Maybe not. No, I think we did it last okay. week. But we cut it out. I really want to see a Mogwai movie. I think that'd be great. No gremlins. Just, uh, just the Mogwai. Just Mogwai. Yeah. A, I'm sorry. Once the gremlins pop up. Stage it, like it gets, a Jungle Book style movie. It gets though. a little less interesting. Well, it's just Mogwai doing his Mogwai thing. It's great. I mean, I don't really want to go like too deep here into the like 80s rabbit hole, but I didn't think any part of Gremlins 1 or 2 was even kind of interesting. I like Gremlins. Does that make me a bad person? No. Gremlins 1's okay. I like Gremlins 2 a lot. Hmm. Is it, is it on the list? No. Okay. I just like a lot. I can like a movie. I, I can like a movie a lot and not have it on the list. I don't know. I don't know if that's true anymore, Mario. I, only, I think we moved to I that. only like 100 movies. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Also, it wasn't pivotal, though. Oh, well, there you go. It might be. It definitely would knock out usual suspects. <laughs> oh, but, you, should, uh, just, you should have found a way to make Gremlins 2 pivotal. But we're, we're going to eventually, really quickly review some of the big Oscar movies that we have skipped, like First Man and Green Book. Two well, movies we both just have so little energy to see. And I just kind of found out that by the 15th of January, all of this Oscar bait stuff that we missed in theaters will be out on VOD. VOD. So we'll do a big, you know, catch-up episode. Next week is going to be a big one, though. There's a lot of stuff yeah. coming out next week. Next and, and there's one movie that's out in our theaters now that we're on the sea. We just didn't get to. So next week will be... We'll have a couple of big weeks yeah. talking about new movies. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't still things nagging at us um, from the last couple of weeks that we've, we've kind of wanted to talk about. And we've, we've flirted with doing it, but we've been, got involved with doing other things. Um, and that is the Netflix release of Orson Welles' Um, the Other Side of the Wind, and then the accompanying documentary, um, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. The Other Side of the Wind is the crazy picture. It's not a work of fiction. And it's a little of everything. It's kind of a departure in movie making. Orson Welles was the ultimate independent filmmaker. Somewhere between Zen master and God. No other director has been held up to such an impossible standard. Citizen Kane, the greatest motion picture ever made. Do you agree? No, certainly not. That's My next one is, though. Could you give us the title of that? I haven't decided what it is yet. Oh. <laughs> the other side of the wind, what is that? Orson Welles' last movie. Um, which... As a one-two punch of, you know, film history and, you know, film itself was really kind of, I don't know, I don't know what the adjective, appropriate adjective is, but it's interesting. It's yeah. really interesting. It's, it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah, no, I, I thought for a second I was going to have the word for it, and I don't. Um, they, they definitely, they're definitely two films that need to be watched together. Yeah. Uh, 
unfortunately, you have to sit through the first half of those films in the sense of The Other Side of the Wind is... Well, awful. yeah, The Other Side of the Wind is total garbage. Um, uh, but let's, so let's start with The Other Side of the Wind, because that's the one you should watch first. So The Other Side of the Wind is, I guess, famously, although I didn't know about it until word of this documentary was getting released. But, I mean, I'm not an Orson Welles guy, so I'm not, I'm not super up on, like, the, the lore of Orson Welles, you know, what he left on the table, what he didn't. Um, it was the last movie he worked on before he died, I guess. And he worked on it for five years, and... Um, I guess he made a bunch of other stuff in between making this movie, but this this is like his last great film. And he had a lot of other films that film. were unfinished. You right, know, that uh, Merchant of Venice variation, which you um, find out and, when you watch the documentary about you know the making of the other side of the wind that he just kind of like started a lot of projects you know in the interim between when he started the other side of the wind and when he died. He was kind of Guillermo del Toro on crack in the sense that Guillermo del Toro <laughs> comes up with a lot of really interesting ideas but never actually films them. Orson Welles often would completely shoot the film and then just not edit it or complete sound or yeah. do things needed to make a movie. Well, that's, I mean, it's an interesting thing to consider. That's an interesting aspect to consider to start considering the other side of the wind from. So it was finished by Peter Bogdanovich, who exhumed these you know all this footage um from a french like film warehouse because it was a they vault were, basically they were being held up by you know uh legal proceedings because this french company that was owned partially by an iranian company by the uh, brother-in-law of the shah yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so he couldn't get access to Orson Welles couldn't even get access to this stuff. But eventually, you know, a, a yeah, settlement the, the was reached. Yeah, the documentary talks about the fact that they tried to use Napoleon, the code, right? Napoleon yeah, yeah. To, to gain access and um, give it to him. Bogdanovich gets it, and working with a couple of other close advisors of Orson Welles, and also working from his notes, they're able to put together what they think is a fairly close cut of what um, Orson Welles's vision seemed like. It was going to be or it seemed like where yeah. where he was going with the movie and much like f for fake it is a mockumentary style film uh but it's also a film within a film kind of like a michelangelo and antonioni antonioni never say that man's name i am we are learning that i am awful with foreign names <laughs> um especially italian foreign well names. italian names are hard yeah because there's a lot of vowels yeah what do us, I do with these? Us, Swiss, do with these us people with Swiss backgrounds don't don't know it. No, Italian. You, you Swiss don't know how to speak Italian. <laughs> They're supposed to actually. <laughs> um, I must said re, re. Like Swiss. Uh, but it's a film within a film style. Um, half of it is this kind of creation of you know this director who happened to die on mm-hmm. his seventieth birthday, and the other side of it is uh, the documentary made of this man's last day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's just where the movie begins with, and it stars, the movie stars John Huston as the director, Jake Hannaford. Um, it also stars um, Peter Bogdanovich as Brooks Otterlake, who is the kind of Peter Bogdanovich character that Orson Welles cooked up. So, you know, if Jake Hannaford is Orson Welles, Peter Bogdanovich is, or, you know, Otterlake is Peter Bogdanovich, which Steal- is hilarious. Stealing roles from Rich Little. 
Well, I don't know if he stole that one as much as Orson Welles just made a bad decision. Um, but we'll talk about that when we talk about the the the, uh, the, um, the documentary about it. Um, I mean, just from an opening, just to open with it, the Peter Bogdanovich gerrymandered an opening onto this film, and it is terrible, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has. I can't imagine that Orson Welles was going to begin this movie with a kind of montage of clips from the film with Otter Lake, you know, narrating from the future about, you know, how it changed his, you know, how it changed yeah. his life. Because this movie's not about Otter Lake at not all. Not in the least. <laughs> it very much isn't. Um, I mean, I guess that one, that one sequence, I suppose, is the one... Because it's Orson Welles. No more plate, guys. Sorry. Because it's his last finishing film. Finishing dinner. Uh, because it's Orson Welles, because it's his last film, part of me wants to give him the benefit of the doubt for a lot of the things that happen here. It doesn't work a lot Can of we... the times, but it's, 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 he's trying something out, right? Can we even argumentatively call his last film, though, with it? I don't you know. know. I mean, that, that documentary, I guess we get more into this in the documentary discussion, but with him saying... That the features are made in editing, and that it's not made until it's musically right. I suppose that's true. Um, is it fair to really consider this Orson Welles' last film, or an Orson Welles shot feature that was then finished by Peter Bogdanovich? I don't know. Um, I feel like I feel like we're trying to start with one thing and then like talk about the other thing, but I think it's impossible not to talk yeah. about them like conjoined. Um, they make a, a big deal in. Um, one of the, a section of the the documentary, they'll love me when I'm dead. Closer towards the end, um, which was directed by Morgan Neville, by the way, who you know had a banner year, who also directed the "Won't You Be My Neighbor," knocking it out of the park this year, right? Um, where they say somewhere about- Morgan Spurlock is like on <laughs> um, the less known Morgan documentarian. Yeah, well, that by for a long good shot reason. Now. Yeah. Um, they talk about the end of this movie in a sequence where they where they discuss the idea that like Orson Welles didn't like to finish movies, and a couple of people that were close to him were like, "That's crazy. He loved to finish movies." But then they show in a quick succession all the movies he started making after he started making this movie, and he didn't finish any of those movies, and he didn't finish this movie. And the thing I think is weird is that he sh- they didn't reshoot anything, you know, for Peter Bogdanovich to put this film together. Uh, the other side of the wind. They didn't reshoot anything. Um, they just used all the. So what? <coughs> what else would he be doing? Like I don't. I don't see. I don't see how this took five years to make. For one, I don't see what all the footage was for, and I don't see what he would need any additional footage to do that would make the other side of the wind a more watchable no, movie. I mean, so it seems to me like all the people that were saying he doesn't like to finish movies may be right, and that he was just kind of continuing to film and film and film just so he would never have to finish it. I don't know. No, I, I could see that. Um, I, I kind of want to get to the documentary. Yeah, talk more about so, it. just because I think I think we should we could wrap up other side of the wind our opinions on it. Um, I consider it a cinematic belch. In the sense that it feels like it was very much something that needed to come out. That was this idea that was needed to be purged. Mm-hmm. And once it did, it just cleared the room. Um, it's just, it's a mess of a movie. It's, yeah. it's shot p- 
poorly. And there's no even interesting shots. It's edited haphazardly. Um, the restoration on the film is really well done. I yeah. give it that. I give whoever did the restoration on, on the footage a lot of credit because it mm-hmm. looks pretty great. There's one interesting sequence um, in the movie. You're not going to talk about the car. No, that was sequence is not interesting. You know, and we'll talk about it when we talk about the documentary, but they went a long way to justify that as, you know, a valid expression of something. It's not. Um, the scene when um, Oya and uh, what's that guy's name? Oh, John Dale. When they're like in the desert and they're kind of, they come to that um, movie town. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the, and the they're, set, basically. Yeah, and they end up on a bed, and she's, like, licking him and stuff. But um, because the film the film that Hannaford is making is unfinished, you have all that um, Hannaford commentary going on. Um, and he's telling Oya what to do with him and telling um, John Dale how to react. Um, and eventually John Dale ends up stor- naked, like, storming off the set. And Hannaford is narrating... Like the whole thing, and you know, there he's telling someone like to get him back, or, or go there goes John Dale, because um, we talked about before that's like a movie within a movie, but this is almost, and you know, Hannaford is watching the movie, but he's watching himself kind of direct these things that are happening, and it's a weird kind of meta, um, you know, it's almost kind of, you know, the scene at the end of Citizen Kane when, when. Um, Charles Foster Kane walks in front of those mirrors and you just kind of see all the different, like, Charles Foster Kane's. There's, yeah. like, all these different iterations of Hannaford's, like, existence and creativity kind of going on in this one, in this one sequence. Um, but then it's, oh, then it's, the sequence is over and you never go back to it. The, you know, the idea of that sequence um, is, I suppose, they think explored more fully in the film, but it isn't. Um, you know, the film within a film within a film thing is all kind of mashed together and, and dumb. Um, because it ultimately end just, just ends up being just one film. Um, which I think P- Peter Bogdanovich kind of fucked up by saying, like, oh, I've compiled all this information. How dare you? And Peter Bogdanovich is a <laughs> national treasure. That's why I have all of his films on my list. But that's go to... Uh, the documentary is the more interesting yeah, part. But of this you thing. need you need to yes, watch yeah, yeah. the other side of the wind in order to fully appreciate um, the love me when I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And the love me when I'm dead, I think, is just another Morgan Neville, just master stroke. Um, this guy's proving himself to just be like the biopic sort of documentary mm. king right mm. now. Yeah, he does a good job. Um, in ways that uh, won't you be my neighbor, kind of tell that narrative of of a man, a very good man, and the forces of nature he came up about, and the troubles and the the problems he faces. I think uh, the love me when I'm dead is is more interesting in the sense that it it is a bio doc mm. in its surface, but it's more a contemplation on film and art mm. and the manipulation of film and art. In doing so, um, honoring kind of what Orson Welles was saying in a lot of the footage they had. Mm-hmm. Um, famously early, not famously, why do I always say famously? Famously! <laughs> not everything that happens in a movie is famously, Mario. Um, early in the film, they kind of have those disagreements um, about, you know, the, what Orson Welles was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not he was a paternal sort of 
figure to Gary Garver are, you know, just just ways in which there's two different completely sides of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And we talked um, in that documentary short episode we did that nobody was interested in, <laughs> it seems. Um, we were interested. Yeah, we were. Uh, our viewer count says differently. Um, that documentaries are all about manipulation, all about sleight of hand. There is early on, you know, the the conversation about how film is illusion. Orson Welles says that film is something you use to distort reality and do we know what reality is. And Morgan Neville kind of expertly throughout the film keeps doing these things of presenting two different sides of the narrative until he gets to the end and he says maybe this film, you know, right. The Love Me While I'm Dead is the movie and The Air Side of the Wind is just the work used to and maybe it's just like the experimental piece used to kind of um punctuate this you know contemplation of Hollywood and the abuse of Hollywood and the abuse and and fears of tyranny are being betra- or betrayal yeah but and he even puts that like inner title at the end of saying it's directed by Orson Welles mm-hmm. saying that you know the love me while I'm dead is directed by Orson Welles um but it's smart in the way that it's a manipulation in the end. That Morgan Neville's created the illusion of saying, this is, no, that's true. This, this movie is exactly what Orson Welles intended to do. Yeah. But he's given you that kind of, you know, breadcrumb trail saying, no, I've just manipulated you into bl- making you think what I need you to think. And I have created that illusion. Yeah. Um, which is where I, another reason I think that the, you know, the other side of the wind is kind of a problem. Um, Especially framed in the way that Peter Bogdanovich framed it. And it's especially interesting, you know, to go along with everything. Can we, can we agree maybe Morgan Neville's better than, than Peter Bogdanovich? Yeah, well, he definitely point. is. Um, Take that, Bogdanovich. Um, you have... It's interesting with everything that you said that, like, a lot of this... A lot of the great footage of, you know, the kind of contemplative, you know, <clears throat> footage of, of Orson Welles is you know, taken from F is for fake. You know what I mean? There's mm. all this great F is for fake footage, like, scattered around yeah. of Orson, you know, and they use it while Orson Welles is talking. I mean, there's a lot of Orson Welles narration in this, you know, him talking about film, him talking about his relationship to his own films. Uh, another smart thing is, like, him responding to questions that interviewer, interviewees are kind of, like, presenting. Yep. They'll ask it, and he interlocks that with some other archive footage of... You know, Orson Welles seeming to be the one responding to it mm. and it being so masterful in how that is edited together. Yeah, and it's just, um, I don't know, it makes me, it makes you think a lot about, you know, he talks a lot about Citizen Kane in the movie. And he says at one point that like Citizen Kane was like the worst thing that ever happened to him. The the greatest, the greatest curse of my life. Right, was... Yeah. Um, of the great curse of my life. Which you can kind of see because everyone just kind of expected him to make Citizen Kane over and over and over again. And they kind of forgot to consider what Citizen Kane was, which was a highly experimental, um, you know, shot in the dark where nobody really, he didn't know if it was going to work a lot of the times. Nobody knew, you know, um, it was, you know, crazy expensive and all this other stuff. Um, and he kind of kept wanting to take those shots. And Hollywood kept saying, no, we don't want you to take those shots. We want you to make Citizen Kane. Yeah. Again. And he would make other films that are now being held in high regard that were, you know, things that helped blacklist him, like Touch of Evil. Right. People love Touch of Evil now. 
but it was a financial disaster. I mean, everything he did to a point was like a financial disaster. And, and you know, including the other side of the wind where there was like all he just had to wrangle for money constantly um, until he didn't have any money. And he, you know, he helped with- Ayatollah get into the Ayatollah. Ayatollah get into power. He um, I say it's 100 percent him. Yeah, yeah, it was or- or- Orson Welles. Too. All Orson Welles. Um, you know, he stayed with Peter Bogdanovich for like what three weeks, eating fudgicles. and they, f- you know, eating fudgicles, and they filmed the midget scene. You know, I just love which was not necessary at all. I do love the part. There's really no reason for them to bring it up, but just like Al, he needed fudgicles constantly. Well, Sybil Shepherd was really offended. By and they that. show that great picture of Orson Welles like sitting in a chair, and he's just like this huge mountain of a human. They're like, oh, he was at his fattest when he was living with us. And it's like, oh man. Um, and it's it, you're right. It is an, it is a, a textbook example of manipulation in film in terms of and it, and it's in doing so, it's able to bring up the themes that the other side of the wind wants to kind of tackle, like some of um his like you know the ideas that Orson Welles may have had some um like nascent homosexual desire. Um, for like some of his leading men, um, which they put in to the other side of the wind, like you know they talk about with you know the person that's supposed to portray Pauline Kael, the film critic who's just walking around talking, like you know the whole movie, um, talks about that like oh he just put Jim Dale in this movie because he just wanted you know he just wanted Jim Dale he wanted to get close to Jim Dale, um, um, but. They actually talk about that a lot in the documentary also, and they can be upfront about it. They don't have to, like, cloak it in, yeah. in metaphor and, like, supposition. They can just talk about, like, this is a thing that it seemed like Orson Welles may have been into, which was maybe one of the reasons that he put this in the movie. And like, that, Or was it more just him making a comment on all that on stuff? On the state of masculinity and shitting on, like, Hemingway and those men. Exactly. And which, so, you know, side note, we should shit on Hemingway. Well, just I'm 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 all done with the Hemingway stuff. It's the days of Hemingway are are all I think done. Society's basically there too, right? Like we're getting to the point. No, I mean I listen to this pod, this writing podcast, and, and one of the things they talk about uh, society Die Hard with a podcast. Society, what? He has a podcast now called Die Hard with a podcast. It's all about Die Hard. <laughs> um, I think society has moved on from Hemingway as a person. I think society, the literature community, is still stuck on Hemingway as a method of of writing. <sighs> Um, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, not a fan of it either. Him and Fitzgerald. Um, Need some Faulkner. But yeah, they'll love, yeah, let's go back to the Faulkner. And Steinbeck. Well, Steinbeck was rough. I like Steinbeck. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't get enough credit. Um, maybe Morgan Neville can do a Steinbeck documentary. Um, yeah, they'll love, I, I think you said the main point, which was, this is the, like, this is the movie. You know what I mean? Like you take all the you take all the footage, and you take all the thoughts, and you take all the commentary of everyone that knew Orson Welles and like made films with Orson Welles, and you get to this. I mean, I, there was something similar happening a little bit in um, that movie Film Worker with the Leon Vitale, who was um, he worked with Stanley Kubrick for like thirty years. He was in Barry Lyndon, and then just stopped acting altogether so he could be like Stanley Kubrick's henchman. Um, and you get to see, and it's present in here too, like this dedication, not so much to a film and not so much to a director, but to that director's vision. Um, 
which I think is something that all of these filmmakers, all of the people featured in They'll Love Me When I'm Dead are kind of a slave to. You know what I mean? Even yeah. John Huston agreeing to do this movie is just to be in an or like just to act with Orson. Like, what's Orson Welles going to do? I want to be a part of whatever whatever Orson Welles is going to do. And it, this sounds bonkers. I want to be a part of that. <coughs> Aren't you sad, though, uh, seeing that the you know, Love Me When I'm Dead, that one of the best scenes, the, probably the best scene for me that would have been in that film was taken out, and that's like Dennis Hopper's mm. little dialogue, because that's great. Well, I think that was an interesting choice to, you know, to put all of those directors in it commenting on film, but it kind of would have been cooler of Orson Welles to kind of let those be, the let those directors be themselves, because it's supposed to yeah. be a present-day thing. Just stick them in and don't give them names. Don't cloud their actual personalities behind, like, you know... A, a character name like let them just be themselves and talk about stuff if he was going to make this kind of pseudo documentary like go all the like way lean into it and right. be very meta and have them be themselves but not actually themselves like playing playing themselves yeah yeah um i don't know yeah. it's a terribly interesting pair of movies yeah uh well when you see their side of the wind you'll be disagreeing vehemently with us and that is correct because it is bad it is very bad. Even if but it is brought up and worthwhile once you see the Love Me When I'm Dead. Because, you know, it's, 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 it's based on the assumption that you have seen it. Yeah, I mean, even if you don't make it all the way through, like the you other side of the around. wind. You jump around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Just, you know, see it for the context. And so you kind of know what Orson Welles is doing. So when you watch the movie, you have a fuller... When you watch The Love Me When I'm Dead, you have a fuller understanding of like what the actual end vision was supposed to be. And yeah. I'm doing all of that in air quotes. Because we don't fully know what the end vision was supposed to be, I guess. Maybe it was about fudge skulls. Maybe. Maybe, the, maybe it was about fudge skulls. I hope so. Mm. I have about in a while. Maybe it was all about those dummies. Eating fudge skulls. All right, we'll be right back with Tom's 80. Welcome back. My number 80 this week is um, Coraline from 2009, directed by Henry Selick, who directed uh, A Nightmare, Nightmare Before, Before Christmas, Christmas. Um, which was an idea that Tim Burton had. This is based off a novel, 2002, I believe, novel by uh, Neil Gaiman, the young adult novel, children's novel. Um, it is done in stop motion animation. It's a mix of stop motion and computer animation, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's 2009, so you weren't going to not use a computer if you had an opportunity to use a computer for something. Um, and especially in some of the stuff that happens at the end when like the, the, the world gets washed out. I don't out. know. I think some of the aardvark movies still use almost all Yeah, but those are, they're doing something a little different. They're not going as, as far as they're going with, with Coraline here. I'm making that comment. There's nothing that they're doing in Shaun the Sheep that is... Do you know, Shaun, we'll wait till Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon comes out, okay, bud? Go okay, ahead. I will. <laughs> we'll compare them. Um, yeah, this is an interesting movie on my list. So we are bridging the gap between my movies that are on my list because of my visceral response to them and the movies that are on my list because I love them. Um, for one reason or another. Um... Even when I saw it in 3D, even though I didn't like it in 3D, 
I pre- much prefer it in in two D. Um, I um, was very taken with this movie um, to the point where I almost we almost named our daughter Coraline because we just thought it, she was the perfect example of uh, the cool daughter that you want to have. Um, what about this movie? I mean, it's kind of an almost where do I start thing. Um, I was a big Nightmare Before Christmas fan. Do you like Nightmare Before Christmas? I don't think we've ever talked about this. It's okay. I like the music. I, I, the yeah, movie me too. itself is fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a fan of the Danny Elfman songs than I am of like the Tim Burton vision realized. Yeah, I'm not uh, a big Tim Burton guy. No, me guy. neither. Um, this movie, I think, pushes the stop-motion animation of Nightmare Before Christmas even further. And I think between those two movies, he did James and the Giant Peach, and I think he did another movie, too. Um, but, you know, Coraline and Nightmare Before Christmas are the two movies. Um, and even then, I was, I was... I was... Watching it the first time, I was aware of the fact that this movie goes further with the stop-motion. I mean, there are scenes in it that are lit so perfectly, you almost think you are watching um, live in front of you, a kind of moving, like a puppet show, almost. It, it's, it almost seems that real, especially if you watch it in high definition now. Um, there's some scenes when they're in Bobinski's apartment um, where, where, you know, YB is, in, they're in the other side, and YB is, is walking around. And I think it's, it might be like the shade of his skin is real is is easy to light um and you get a full three-dimensionality to it it's really i don't know i've i've always found stop motion animation really breathtaking um i was a big fan when i was a kid of the california raisins movie um that a california raisins movie almost made my list and maybe um you know if we did if we go 106 and further there'd be a california raisins movie on my list. i've been i've always been fascinated with stop motion animation and i think this is kind of you know almost the pinnacle of of that stuff. I know there's more movies that have come out with stop motion animation, and I've seen a few of them. Um, what is that? My life is a zucchini that just mm. came out with stop motion animation. Um, I think um, it doesn't do the same thing that this is doing. It's in. It's not just for the sake of doing it. It is stop motion animation in complete service to the story, in complete service to the narrative. So. One of the things that I find really fascinating about this book or this movie is that it's so much better than the book in the sense that the book I find, um, and even though I like Neil Gaiman a lot, the book is very vague. The book does not have the level of detail um, in, in, in the details or in the narrative that the movie has. Um, and it's something that I was aware of like right from the beginning. Like this is... This was a world, and we talked a lot about we talk a lot about world building on this on this podcast. This is a world where I now realize that I kind of wanted to be, and I think when I saw it, and when I showed it to my kids, I assumed it was a world they would want to be in, and I think my affection for it was relegated to the idea that like I know I'm having a kid soon. I'm going to show this to my kid. Um, they're gonna. They're gonna like it. They're gonna they're gonna want to be Coraline. They're gonna want to go explore. Yeah, they want to go exploring things. They're gonna be brave. They're gonna be adventurous. Um, 
But my kids are very, very indifferent to this movie. Really? Um, they kind of find it scary. Um, to well, button eyes, my friend. Point, right. To a point where it's like off-putting for them. Like I just don't think that they, they're just kind of like turned off by it. Um, and it was in their being turned off by it that I realized that it wasn't me trying to live vicariously through them. I was trying to, li- I was trying to live vicariously through them. In reality, I just wanted to be it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This is a, I wanted to explore that house um, with all of its windows and its dark corners and its, you know, drawing room shut off. It's my dream, you know, to find a, a, a doorway, you know, a mysterious doorway in your house. Into John Malkovich's head. Yeah, well, that's, that's also on the list for those playing the game. That's another <laughs> hint. Um Ah, Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The Glass Menagerie. Um, (laughs) In the Line of Fire. Oh, there you go. Or in the Line. That was almost on my list. That's a good movie. I I, I think I always wanted to be Coraline Jones. Um, I always wanted to have this experience. And through this movie, I kind of get to have this experience whenever I want. And I think that's where like the visceral and the love kind of match up in that I can I have like a sense not a sense of memory but like a phantom sensation of kind of doing these things or what my what my 10-year-old self would have would have reacted to it. Um, and I can access in this movie it like allows me to access not so much memories from my childhood but kind of like feelings of being a kid. So what's interesting for me is Coraline I found very entertaining and enjoyed it. Didn't really have an emotional reaction to it. Mm-hmm. But rewatching it made me realize how much of an emotional reaction I had to another Henry Selick film that um, captures a lot of those same things, that, that, that wish and want yeah. to be somebody. And that is James and the Giant Peach, mm-hmm. that uh, 1996 one. Yep. You know, finding the giant, you know, getting a giant peach, finding yeah. anthropomorphic bugs <laughs> inside of it. I love the Roald Dahl book as a child. Um, and I saw James and the Giant Peach as a child, too. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I kind of do understand that wanting to be a character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess in a lot of ways, James and the Giant Peach and Coraline to me now feel really similar. Because I did rewatch James and the Giant Peach, and they're very similar in style. I, James and the Giant Peach is much less scary. Um, yeah, well, Coraline at night sometimes doesn't feel like a, a film meant for children. Right. Yeah. Roger Ebert kind of said that also. That um, it's, it's a little rough for kids. Yeah. Like James and the Giant Peach are, are films of that ilk. Even something like Corpse Bride. Um, mm. You know, that Tim Burton travesty. Um, come at me. Hot topic women. No one's coming at us anymore about Tim Burton movies. Tim Bur- the Tim Burton era of of film is over. Uh, you know, like those movies have have elements that that could be for a family, that could be for children, mm-hmm. um, despite or scary or thematically well, dark James moments. James Giant Peach is just kind of weird. Yeah, but it's not. It's not. But it's like a little got got some grossness to it. Right, right, right. Um, whereas this, I think, thematically especially thematically just overall has kind of the premise and what's going on in the Mm -hmm. film um, from a metaphorical ideological standpoint is very adult and, but still 
approachable enough for children to understand that it's dark and grim. Right. It deals with themes that are very much something a child can understand, but that a child doesn't want well, to it's, it's confront. Tr- because it's told from her perspective in kind of the same manner that E.T. is, um, it, you're, she's responding to everything, and we're getting to see everything how she's seen it. So mm-hmm. she's not going to see the other mother turn into you know the taller version of herself the more spider-like version of herself as anything less than terrifying yeah um we're not going to experience um you know some of the wonder of the stuff that she sees when she goes over to the other side um as anything less than just tremendous less than what anything any kid could want that discovers like a hole in the side of her house that takes her to another version of her house. That's just better. Yeah. Um, and that is Henry Selick doing all that stuff. I mean, his vision of, of this world is so intense and so fully realized that it's easy for me to it's easy for me to get there. It's easy for me to get to the place where I say like, ah, I want to I want to do that. I want to go. I want to, you know, I want to explore that, find that well. I want to you know meet these characters. I want to you know do all of this stuff. Um, I mean, part of that also is the voice casting, which I think is perfect in this movie, which is really weird because a lot of I think animated movies where you're casting famous people as voices, you're just kind of casting whatever famous person you can get. Um, but like, I guess to, you know, when this movie was made, I guess Terry Hatcher is the most famous person that's in this movie in 2009. Dakota Fanning still had some notoriety. I mean, 2009 though. She was still coming a couple years off of War of the Worlds. Yes. Um, I'd say Terry, but Terry Hatcher was probably doing desperate housewives at the time. Oh, right, right. I forgot about that show. Um, but the, everyone hits. I mean, Keith David is the cat. I mean, we'll always say yes to a Keith David yeah. performance, but especially a voice acting performance. Exactly, and like you know, Ian McShane as Mr. Bobinski is just fucking fantastic. And it's it's these characters are so fully realized, and then also so fully revealed in their character design and their acting that you can you know. When I say before that you can almost reach out and touch YV at that one point, you almost feel like you can reach out and touch all of these people. You can almost... It's almost I was, when I was watching it again, I kind of had the sensation... I don't know why I was... Maybe it was just because I was in the mood to watch it again, and I, you know, I was responding to everything. But I almost had the sensation that you could kind of see in a couple of scenes like us, like a person's hand manipulating these things. And you were just kind of right there watching... Like a live performance of these of these puppets, almost. Um, I don't know. It's just it's it's a really it's a really great movie. I think it's probably a little underappreciated in like the pantheon of animated films. I think you know that you have your Pixar movies. Did even, did even win best animated film? No, at the Oscars that year. That was what was that year? Two thousand nine would have been. I think that was a Pixar movie. It was a Pixar movie, yeah. I forget which Pixar movie it was. Um, I don't know. That's why it's there. I love it. And I'm going to watch it a a million more times. And when my kids get older, like hopefully they'll want to watch it again as they get more comfortable with the vaguely scary things. 
All right, we will be back shortly with Mario's number 80. Welcome back. My number 80 is the 1957 British-American co-production directed by the man known for his Oliver Twist and Great Expectations and really nothing else. Only, only his Dickens movies. Yeah, that's all I know him from. Yeah, David Lean. Uh, his bridge on the River Kwai, telling mm. the tale of British-American POWs in a Japanese camp who are tasked with building a bridge on an uh, unnamed river. We don't know what the river's called at all. I think that's what Kwai means, no name. Yeah. Um, and it tells the struggle between the POWs fighting for their, believe their rights over the the Geneva Convention, and uh, the Japanese commander, Sato, who's uh, basically been obligated to commit ritual suicide if uh, this is not done. Um, one of the greatest war movies ever made, in my opinion. Uh, the reason this is on my list, though, is it is such an intensely human film. Mm. And I wasn't alive in 1957, surprisingly. Um, you were not alive in 1957. Almost, yeah. But looking now at the way we see film 12 years into the future. Um, for example, a film humanizing the, the September 11th uh, terrorists uh-huh. wouldn't be really met with, with much fervor. And, and this film does take those moments to humanize the Japanese, which I found interesting. Mm. It's, it's a movie that, that, while it definitely portrays the Japanese as antagonists, does do a lot of effort to round out the characters, to yeah. create conflict, to create thoughts, to create just a fullness that you didn't see in war films at the time. Well, they, they you know, Nicholson talks a lot about code, um, and he condemns Saito for his lack of code, but it's just a different code. Exactly. Um, and it's not a, it's not a code based well, that on great, that war. That great line of, of coward's code. Um, right. Saito calling it the cowards. You see, the code specifically states that the... Diverse in the ranks! You speak to me of code? What code? The coward's code. What do you know of the soldier's code? Of Bushido? Nothing! You are a worthy of command! It is not based on war. It's based on something... It's not based on a convention that took place, you know, 30 years prior. Or, you know, 27 years prior, or whatever. It is based on something much more... Rooted in in like a history of a culture yeah. more so than like these are some rules in a book that some politicians came up with, um, and that's an interesting yeah that's an interesting struggle and it's a very human struggle. Well, that's that's the like in a lot of ways that Nicholson um, becomes 
a minor antagonist in his own is he becomes so enrooted in his own traditions. He becomes so enrooted in, in showing British ingenuity and, and British fortitude in, you know, perfecting and building the bridge mm-hmm. um, that he loses sight of what that really means. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's it's so clever in how it in the years that are st- it's still volatile it mm-hmm. following, um, you know, World War II, especially, you know, Asian relations. Sure, yeah, with yeah. The Korean War going on. Um, in respecting the ideas of those cultures and presenting a very human lens into how those cultures exist and how those cultures work. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, of course, also accepting the fact this film's just a masterstroke in direction. Oh, in yeah. Cinematography. Fantastic. Uh, still maybe my favorite performance by in a film without Guinness's performance in this. I Your just, favorite uh, all-time performance in a film? Up there. It's up there. It's interesting. Favorite. I don't think the best. Maybe my favorite. And it's 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 one I saw this movie really young. I saw this when I was 8. Mm-hmm. Um it was one of the few th- really long movies that held my attention. I think it's this and it's a wonderful life, mm. which we might be talking about in a long while make notes we will <laughs> um was it? it's like two, two hours and 42 minutes yeah it's around like that. about that yeah. uh it's it's approaching three hours um but it's he's just an entrancing performance by him um there's there's so much charisma in it uh and it's a very very much a performance that doesn't demand charisma but he carries himself with such assuredness and but but a false assuredness and i think that's clever there there's this questioning that he kind of has well, think, and it's it's very it's a very kind of quiet performance in a lot not it's not a quiet performance but it's quiet in in the things it's not directly yeah. saying i mean i think it's one of the interesting things of this film and i suppose you can credit alec guinness for that is that the um like the stakes very quietly keep getting i don't want to say ratcheted up but they keep getting redirected Mm. you know what i mean so as at first he just wants to maintain the dignity of of his of of the soul of 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 his whole they don't want to be treated like slaves they want to be treated like soldiers so his his goal is really just to to do that to maintain the dignity of of these soldiers when they're here you know at this at this camp they're not going to be they're not going to be mistreated um, and it turns into maintaining the dignity of like British nationalism, which was never really in jeopardy at all, but he made it he made it that way, and you have you have Clifton kind of you know the 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 doctor kind of questioning him the whole way, like, why are you doing this? He's like, well, you don't understand what it's like to be in the army. And he's, you know, and he's right to a point where, like, working on this bridge has helped these men, like, stay focused and stay useful and stay in the good, um, you know, the good... Graces. On, on the good, oh, fuck, yes, thank you. In the good graces of their, um, you know, the Japanese soldiers. But it also, like, he just, he keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and you don't even really realize that he's pushing it that far until he realizes that he's pushed it that far 
Um, and he's just like, oh, what have I done? Yeah. At the end of the movie. Um, and that's that's all – you're right. That's all Alec Guinness. I mean, like, even just after – doing that stuff. Like, even after he gets hit with that mortar. He gets hit with that mortar. There's still like that brushing off of the hat and trying to stand like an officer. You know, right, kinda, yeah. Kind of maintain that, that um, facade of pride mm-hmm. in some degree, you know, mm. uh, and then dropping onto the detonator, which is just one of the more – classic scenes in film um but yeah this this is just something we're still kind of in in the moments of, of movies that i intellectually respond to from a young age and the fact that this is such a clean production like it's for it's so lean well it's in the sense that there's there's not a is. lot of wasted space there's not yeah, a lot of, meh, we could argue about that i think some of the um i think some of the commander shears stuff just kind of goes on and on and on. Um, I think it's all in relevance to character building. And I, I think this movie does... I think Lean, you know, David Lean's really focused in, in character building. He sometimes would lose it. Um, I think his Dr. Chivago mm-hmm. is overlong. But Lawrence of Arabia is, what, almost four hours long. But that is supposed to be a four-hour character study. And yeah. He just had, like, the greatest character and the greatest <laughs> character actor. Yeah, to just you know play it so, which is what I would actually consider the greatest performance of all time. Oh, really? In Lawrence huh. of Arabia. Interesting. I mean, the thing I I hadn't seen it in a while. We talked about this a little bit off air, and I went through a big David Lean phase that kind of dissipated when I started watching like early Herzog movies, and I was just I like, am one Herzog. <laughs> oh, he's here! All right, we we're just talking about you. I directed this movie. Um. And only from the sense, from the like the, the psychological standpoint, that like he pushes the psychological boundaries of all of these situations way further than David Lean is going to push, going to push them. Um, but Lean was doing it in a time well, when, oh, sorry, not sorry. a lot of epic filmmakers were. And I would, and that's a, that's kind of what I was going to argue is that he is. There's some shots in this movie that are um, fairly modern, and. And, and interesting shots that you wouldn't expect, that I wasn't expecting, and that I didn't remember seeing when I watched it, like, you know, when I was 21 years old or whatever. Um, that Such I as? When I was just, cons- like, so when they're standing, when Saito has kind of said, he sent the, he said, he's going to send the soldiers to work on the bridge. And, um, you know, Nicholson says, like, oh, you know, the officers won't work. And then, you know, the Japanese try to order the soldiers to the bridge to work and like the soldiers don't listen the officer orders the soldiers and then the, the soldiers go in all that's left there is the officers and Nicholson just standing mm. in the sun um and there's a great shot where the camera's a little off kilter and you're just seeing like it's like slanted and you're just seeing like the top of Nicholson's like neck and then the bodies of you know, the standing bodies of, of his officers behind him. Um, and you have so much space above him. Like, so, like, it almost seems like it's miscomposed. Um, but it's not. It's bringing a real subtle sense of... Like, the weight. Of the everything. weight, and then also the danger. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, this could go in either direction here. Like... Everyone is off kilter. Like Nicholson's not sure. There's a literally a machine gun in the back of a truck just pointed at them. Um, Nicholson has no idea 
whether or not Saito is actually going to command someone to shoot them. And Saito also has no idea, like, what the fuck do I do? Because I need these guys to work, to work for me. Um, and I thought that was a that was a, a really interesting shot for 1957. You know what I mean? It's got it's so it's so psychologically um, complex. Yeah, there was there was a, a lot real... of that in American films in in 57. I mean, j- even just looking at like Lolita, which we talked about last week, like Kubrick didn't do anything nearly as interesting in 1962. No. And it's Stanley fucking Kubrick. And I think I think I think Lean takes a lot of inspiration in some ways from the noirs or, or maybe even the German films. Mm. Um, of just building Misa scene. Like, there is a lot of that. Yeah. There is a lot of just that, that composition in terms of establishing the scope and establishing the, the emotive sense. Mm. Um, and maybe that's why I don't, I don't feel there's a lot of wasted moments or a lot of wasted spaces. I do think there's a lot of careful consideration in each of the shots, and that is always, as we said in the first part, kind of manipulating you or are pushing you in the way in which he wants you to feel mm. um you know that that you know, opening shot um where they're ordering the soldiers to work how they kind of walk in formation mm-hmm. you know they're now at kind of the the whim of the um the japanese and you know just how far out that shot is and they watch and you watch them march yep you know they are now the scope of that kind of gives you the fact that they are they're locked in to the step of what the japanese want you to do but then later in that dinner sequence there's kind of more uh, between Sato and, and Nicholson, there's more of kind of a closeness, a middle shot, and that gives more of an in- scope that Sato realizes he doesn't necessarily have all the power because they're one right there. They're both right. in equal standing. They're in equal positions. They're equally framed. You know, even uh, the blocking and Sato is kind of like relaxed, like lean back and slowly, you know, kind of sits forward. Mm-hmm. Um, which is then kind of turned on its head when he kind of gives those that that rest day where Sato kind of like tries to recompose his sort of power and then he's standing and he's got body on and it also Nicholson. it also is juxtaposed <coughs> against the meeting scene when you know all the officers are released and and Nicholson sees like the work being done on the bridge and he like reformulates a plan for how to do it Sato's just leaned back in his chair with his arms crossed you know over his chest just kind of saying yes to whatever Nicholson's you know, saying because he realizes that he's lost. He's lost all this power. Um, but he's still got to get this bridge together. Like, yeah. losing the power or not, no one's going to know that he lost the power if the bridge gets up and it works. Um, they're just going to move the prisoners to another camp and no one's going to care. Yeah, the sign is up, but they could take the sign down and, you know, who even really gives a shit because it's not helping the British All, all. that matters is the bridge is getting done. Yep. Yeah. And, that, and, and that was why what I do find so interesting is beyond performances and beyond, you know, the scope of the humanity, which is what I truly like about it is just how much those themes are presented with how shots are composed and how, how they're blocked. I think lean was just such a master of knowing what was going to be done. And, Oh yeah. I, mean, I haven't seen a lot of documentaries. I haven't read a lot about lean. So it'd be mm-hmm. funny if it just turns out lean was just like, ah, just do what you're going to do, but it doesn't necessarily. At all no, feel he is. I mean, he has total control over, over yeah. this film and I, in, in all of his films that they only i think they only really Maybe worked not dr shivago no but he had probably too much control over dr shivago and the scope Maybe. was too big i mean and this is i want to know what you think about this because this is something that kind of popped into my head when i was watching this and, and you know reading 
like some reviews about it. And I, I know, everything's good. Everything's like it's a classic movie. Blah blah blah. You know, won seven Academy Awards. It could have won eight, but they didn't. You know, they were not going to um, give a Japanese American. Yeah, Japanese American was he? Sasue Hayakawa. Is he Japanese? Sasue American? Hayakawa? Is he Japanese I don't know American? if he was Japanese American. So they were not going to give him. They were not giving him a supporting actor organization. Um, supporting actor award. There's an interesting theme running through this movie in regards to knives. And it stood out to me because a lot of the things that I read and a lot of the things that we talked about and a lot of the things that you see in this movie are in regard regarding the broadness of the scope of this movie, like how big it is. You know what I mean? Like they're dealing with a, a massive outdoor set. Um, they shot it on location in Ceylon, um, which I think is in Vietnam um, or Burma, one of those, one of those countries. Um, you know, with the bridge and the rivers and like all this and all this in the, you know, the jungle. But everyone wants to kill somebody with a knife. You know what I mean? There's, there's more of a closeness to it in person. Exactly. There's like an, it's a, it's, it's a hammering down of the idea of intimacy that it's not enough. You're not just what it means to actually kill a person. Um, you just, and you know, so, um, well, that's why I think, I think, to me, oh, I'll let you finish. No, no, go ahead. To me, that that is is more hammering down the theme of it being an individual story. That there's the very large, you know, overarching narrative of the bridge needing to be built and the risks and dangers and what that means for each character. But it, this is more about the pride and, and plays of power between two or three different men. Mm. Um, you know, c- compare that to something like Great Escape, which at its core is just about escaping a prison. It's not right. it's not a character study in any way, or, or something like Dirty Dozen, um, you know, where this plot takes precedence. In this, the plot is just a vehicle to explore these characters and to explore these characters' weaknesses. Which, and, you know, that is the intimacy of the knife, is right. you are next to them. And the other word that like came to mind was confinement. And you know, Saito puts him in that sweat box, puts Nicholson in that sweat box to punish him for like his insubordination. Um, it is. You're right. I think that it, in ultimately this movie comes down to an exploration of how we form our ideals and the circumstances that help or push or manipulate those ideals into becoming what they ultimately are. Um, so they, I mean, even at the end of the movie, like they realize that Nicholson, so Shears and um, Major Warden realize that Nicholson is helping, you know, the Japanese, you know, he's, that he's, he's seen the, the, the wire for the explosions and they're helping him. Um, and they're telling the young kid Joyce, who they've you know picked up for this mission, to kill like to kill him, to kill Nicholson, because they are all. It's a separate. It's like a separation then, because they're they're just British at that point. They're just like they're or they're they're just allied forces, and Nicholson is himself. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so they're not. No, they're no longer his, concerned anymore with him as his self identity has. Has overwhelmed, overwhelmed the, the, allied, the cause. allied cause, yeah, which is really interesting. I mean, and it's a two-hour and forty-minute movie about building a bridge during wartime. 
a war of, of which you never see any of. No. Um, and it's, like you said earlier, it's just very, it maintains its grip on you through the entire time, minus those weirdo scenes where Shears is on the beach. And they're having those really long conversations about how Shears is not Commander Shears, and he's just a Navy grunt, and he just lied to people. Listen, you need to give William Holden something to do sometimes. I don't think you did. I don't think he did in this movie. I don't really think he was particularly. Disagree. I don't think he was particularly excellent in this. <clears throat> I'm not actually never really been the biggest fan of William Holden. I like him here, but almost always I've never. Well, I think his attitude works here. I just don't think his acting works. Every time I see William Holden, though, I'm like, ah, I'd rather have Joseph Cotton in this role. Mm. Well, I think Holden's good when he's. I mean, he was won an Academy Award, so we're kind of being jerks, but yeah. Um, well, I'm not saying I dislike star. him. I yeah. just like. I just like. I think his charisma. I think I just wanted to see Joseph Cotton more. Well, you know what so it is? Actually, what it is. I'll compare Will to William Holden to someone like George Clooney, where he's so charismatic that you mm. don't mind seeing him in some stuff, but sometimes he turns into. You mean kind The of, Rock? Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean The Rock. Um, William so, Holden and Dwayne Johnson. The same. Very similar. They're both very tan. Yeah. In some of. In, and they both deliver a very good spine buster. <laughs> Did he do that in this movie? That's the one scene I missed. Some movie. Um. Yeah, he's just so charismatic that, like, even though he's really clunkily delivering lines sometimes, you're just kind of like, okay. I mean, you're not selling it, but you I don't mind watching You have a presence, yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you for making me watch this movie again. You're welcome. I enjoyed it a lot, actually. Good. Yeah. Except for Usual Suspects? Oh, I'm over the Usual Suspects. No, I liked watching the Usual Suspects because it reminded me how much I hated it. That's good. You know what I mean? Like, it was a movie I was hoping I was never going to have to think about it again, but I was glad when I did have to think about it. I was like, this movie still fucking sucks. Well, I hope there's a movie that's coming up then that will subject you to the same torture that Exodown Taurus was for me. <laughs> yeah, it was the usual suspects. Yeah, but I, I did not. In, well, those flashbacks. But you hadn't fun. seen the Accidental Tourist yet, so it was all new. Yeah. It was like fresh torture. It was just like bleach driven. Nah, well, you know what? That's getting a little too much. It's just the yeah, <coughs> Taurus was just a an experience that I don't want to have to have again. You're the only person ever to say that watching the Accidental Taurus was an experience. Man, it was like three in the morning. <laughs> There was a weird, like, there was just a dream sequence. What, is, like, what is going on? What's happening here? This is more the fact, like, Lawrence Kasdan thought he was doing something. I'm like, you're not doing anything, but He thought he was doing something. He wasn't. But, yeah, Bridge on the River Kwai, my number 81. 80. My, my number 80. We're going to leave that in. The fact that I don't know my numbers. No, we confuse it a lot. Yeah, I'm good. I don't think we ever thought we were going to get this far. No. Scratched off my number 80. Now we're getting yeah, 79 we're next time. Yeah, 70s. Yeah. Um, uh, the decade neither of us were alive. No. My, my mom was, uh, was barely a teenager in, in the end of the 70s. So Was that relevant? I'm just like, I have a young mom. <laughs> young moms. <laughs> um, you can follow us at twitter.com slash film pivotal, which I have to update more on. Somebody told me... That I have to, like, if I really want to get Twitter presents, we have to do it, like, six times a day. And that is overwhelming. What do we say six times I a day? I don't know. I feel like there's now stuff to say, like, at least three times a day because, like, these new award circles things coming out. But it feels so disingenuous to speak 
six times a day, it's like, I'm just trying to get Twitter presence. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, not going to do that. That's maybe, fine. maybe once, right? Like two to three times if a day. pops up. Yeah. Like two, like, oh, like there's, there's been a couple times I've, I tweeted like three times in a day, and then I don't tweet for like four days. You can say, oh, look, say. Ethan Hawke has won another Best Actor award. He's now, front run- he's now the front runner. He's now the front runner. Oh, my God. Thank God. Well, I think it's. I mean, I don't want to talk about this now. We'll talk about this later. I mean, everyone should get really excited for our big, you know, um, our favorites of the year. We're not going to do it until the week, and we're going to put that episode up the weekend before the Oscar nominations. So people won't think that we're influenced in any way by like what's going on with the Oscars. We're not. We don't give a shit. We've got our own opinions and feelings on everything that's I mean, happening. To be fair, if a movie suddenly pops up that we hadn't heard of for some right. reason, we'll watch it. But that's not going to happen. No. Um. I think it's rounding out. I think it's actually fairly clear what's going to happen. <laughs> what's going to happen in March, right? February. Is it February this it's year? Got, it's got it's a little earlier this year. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was next year that they were moving it up. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear what's going to happen in February, but we'll see. That's kind of part of the adventure of uh, of this this film game that we're all a part of, right? Yeah. Um, you can also look at our Instagram, Instagram.com slash... Film. And I think I might put the picture of this, this little. I haven't updated something in a while, but this is a this is actually an interesting looking can. Yeah. I like this one. We'll put this guy in it too. This is a, this is this is one of the better looking cans in a while. Well, this branded brewing makes a good banded brewing makes a good can. Yeah, good job, banded. Very attractive can. Uh, there you go, John Denkowski. We're gonna there. we're gonna hashtag John Denkowski in our in the Twitter face there. Um, also our website, Pivotal Film. Podcast.com or pivotalfilm.com. You usually do this part, but you're just looking at your list. You're not. You're not. Oh, damn it, you're not sorry. doing what you're supposed to do. Um, go to pivotalfilm.com to look at a list of all of the movies that we talked about and the beers that we drank th- and links to where you could subscribe to the Pivotal Film podcast. You can go to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com have or got, write us at pivotalfilm. Have we got an email yet? Nope. Oh. We get a lot of notifications that people have sent us ads on Twitter. Excellent. But that's it. Um, which is fine. You know? We're yeah. getting there. Yeah. People were waiting to see if we got to the 70s, and then they would be like, okay, they're for real. Oh, God. Coffee stout in my nose. That must, oh, that's fun. That must burn. Yeah. It smells nice. <laughs> it's aromatic this way. Yeah, there you go. Um, do that, and, you know, do whatever else you want. I don't and you know what? Shit. Looking at Looking at what's coming out. This week, it is a really good week. If you're in the New Haven area, you got you got your your pick of the litter. You've been waiting all year for something like this to come along, where half of the movies at Criterion are worth seeing. You you go you go down to Criterion with that little thing, that that little popper thing. You pop it, then you have to pick up all like the uh, the little string that comes out. It's not New Year's Eve, but you're so excited, right? And you want to pop it. Yeah, I'm gonna pop it. Then. We're not going to the Fairmont Theater. Maybe. I hope I go. I hope one of the movies that we're going to see this weekend is playing in one of the screening rooms. Those are my favorite. Well, I bet you. I bet you one of. I, I think I have a gut feeling what one of them is. What you think? Eternity's Gate. Yeah, me too. Did or Vox Lux. Vox Lux might. Oh yeah, Vox Lux might. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's got Natalie Portman in yeah. it. Eternity's Gate's got, got William Dafoe. And Aquaman also has William Dafoe. So, oh, there you go. That's true. Um, so, maybe if you're going to see Aquaman, 
or Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Sure. But or, definitely if you're going to see Aquaman. Oh, no, I'm going to I'll redo that. I'm just talking about you're going to need a beer to go see Aquaman, probably. Apparently it's not bad. But it's also apparently not great. And it's still an Aquaman movie. It's James Wan, though. I like James Wan. Oh, my God. Are you going to see Aquaman? I'm, I'm shaking my head. I don't <laughs> want to answer that. No, I'm not going to see Aquaman. But you should go see a movie. Not and then Aquaman. drink a beer. And we'll talk to you next week.